as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe me? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, First point, very simple. Your authority determines your allegiance. But we've always had a problem with authority as Americans, haven't we? I mean, the, the Commonwealth of Virginia state seal is what? Thus always the tyrants, right? So we've always kind of been a little bit repulsed to anybody who's going to say they have authority over us. I mean, the 60s, we kind of kept it together through World War II, and then the 60s just kind of blew everything apart after that, right? Or we don't want any authority anywhere, and then it just got worse. I, historically, I kind of noted it at Watergate. That's when things really started to break down, where we just generally are suspicious about what authority are keeping from us. If it's not Watergate, you know, pick your political party, pick your situation, Oliver North and the Iran-Contra affair, Clinton and Lewinsky. I remember being in high school, reading the Wall Street Journal. Yes, I did read the Wall Street Journal in high school. And I remember reading the transcript of Clinton and Lewinsky. Or, you know, Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice, there's weapons of mass destruction. Oh, we can't happen to find them. Or any number of other things. I'm just trying to spread it out to, you know, all political parties. We thought pastors were safe. And then there's been cover-ups started with the Catholic Church, all of this inappropriate sexual behavior. We thought they were the safe ones. And then all kinds of other cover-ups in the church that started to come out. And we said, no, we, we just, nobody trusts authority. You know where I really noticed it was COVID. And this is not, I'm not talking about COVID, so don't worry. But during COVID, what I saw happen is so many people appealed to all kinds of different authorities. Uh, There was nobody to kind of bring us together or guide us. So people were appealing to people who aren't doctors, people who were appealing to people who are doctors, appealing to people who had credibility, appealing to people that didn't have credibility. It just went sideways. And I noticed all of the culture had no clear understanding of how we understand or even engage with authority. We pick our own credentials that we want, Fox, CNN, OAN or whatever that thing is, uh, MSN. I'm just trying to, again, cover all the bases. But we really are struggling with how to understand authority. Matter of fact, if you came in late today, you also missed the announcement that we're going to install Scott Puckett, our uh, new pastor for Engage the World, today at 4. Please come back for that if you can make it. Let's get our hands on his back and encourage him. It'll just be a short service I'm preaching But Scott said something, I had 45 minutes with him this week, and he said something that was brilliant. He reminded me of Diane Langberg, who's kind of the world expert. She's a Christian PCA uh, member, the world expert at understanding trauma. 
And he said, the problem with, Diane Langberger said, the problem now is we have disembodied authority. That we have given authority to influencers or to people on the media or people that we don't know. They're disembodied. And it used to be where the authority, the constable, the governor, the mayor, you could bump into them. You could see them in town. It was embodied authority. And that's why now more than ever, it's so critical for us to have an embodied authority, which is the incarnation of Christ. That Christ himself embodied himself to say, I am your authority. Now that's what's being discussed here. Verse 2. Tell us by what authority you can do these things. In other words, the scribes and the chief priests, they were the authority. Now Jesus comes and starts doing all these things. And they say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who said that you could do this? Where do you get off saying that you can uh, be the king of the world and do all of that? Now, here's what I want you to think about. We don't normally think through Christ as an authority structure. But when you read the New Testament, that's That's the fundamental part of how he based so many of his arguments and how people received him. For example, the centurion in Matthew chapter 8. You remember the centurion? If not, I'll tell you. He was a commander, a soldier, commander over 100 people. That's why centurion. And uh, he had a servant that needed to be healed. And he went to Jesus and he said, hey, can you come heal my servant? And Jesus said, yeah, I'll get there. And he said, no, 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 just I'm a man under authority. I know what authority is like. Just say it will be done and it will be done. He said, for I too am a man under authority. And Jesus, remember Jesus' response? He marveled and he said, I've never seen faith like this anywhere. What makes Jesus marvel when somebody says, we recognize, God, that you are our authority. You didn't just forgive our sins. You're actually our authority. Let me go on through some of the other New Testament. Matthew chapter 9. But that you might know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive. He said to the paralytic, pick up your mat and walk. And Jesus says, so that you might know. So all of you might know, I actually have authority. You're healed. Uh, Mark chapter 1, and they were amazed, and all the people questioned among themselves, what is this? It's a new teaching with authority, they said of Jesus. Luke chapter 9, he called together the 12 uh, disciples and gave them power and authority over demons and diseases. John chapter 10, no one takes it from me. I lay down my life on my own accord, says Jesus. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to pick it up. And then remember Matthew chapter 28, when he said, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth, all authority is given to me. So go make disciples of all nations. Because I own it all. I'm not just a good rabbi. I'm not just a philosopher with a good idea about who God is. I am the sole authority of all of heaven and all of earth. And all throughout the New Testament, we see over and over again that missing part that we don't tend to emphasize in American Christianity, that Jesus is not just the one who forgives our sins. He is that. He's also our ultimate authority. Now, authority can be uh, imposed or it can be granted, right? 
For example, you have imposed authority. As soon as you're born, you're born into this nation. The laws of this nation are therefore imposed upon you, whether you like it or not. You can try to run for Congress or you know, Senate and change them if you want to do that. But you live now in the laws of this land, so it's imposed upon you. Or there's granted authority. You and your business partner, you can't agree on something. And so you do it. You go to mediation. You go to arbitration and you say to the judge, you be our authority. We're, turning, we're granting you the authority to decide on this. With Christianity, it's both. With Christianity, we say, look, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to you. You're going to judge non-Christian and Christian. You're going to judge us all anyway. What the Christian says is, now I grant you authority. I grant you authority over my life to tell me how to live, to tell me how to walk, to tell me what to say. God, I am now granting you authority over my life. I am not my own. I belong to you. And so it's a beautiful thing because when you have authority, you can appeal to it. Uh, All of you, not all of you, but I'm going to guess in this room, let me get a good look at you. Uh, I'm going to guess 80% of you watched football yesterday. Uh, And if not, some of you will watch it today. There's some great games on yesterday that didn't turn out to be actually great games, but good matchups. But nonetheless, what happens when you're watching one of those games, when you're watching Tennessee try to clamor out of the uh, end zone before getting a safety? What what happens at that moment? There is an appeal to authority. Uh, Some coach throws a flag or somebody in the booth says, we have to review this, this is a play. And then what happens? Everybody appeals to that authority. They have granted the officiating staff the right to adjudicate their case and their claims. That's exactly what's happening. And what do they do? They run over to the screen and they look at that little thing. And in those moments, right, we see it happen in real time, bam, bam. And we're like, I, I'm not sure. What has to happen? They slow it down. And as soon as you see it slow down, you're like, of course he was, you know, down before he got out. Of course he made that touchdown. Of course this happened. We see it slow down and they see it from 20, 30, 40 different perspectives. They see it from this angle and this angle and this angle and this angle. So authority, having the authority of Christ means when we're confused, when we don't know what's up and what's down, when we don't know what to do, we appeal to it and say, God, from your perspective, Because you can see through eternity, you can see all of this that we can't see from your perspective, with all the different angles that you can see. Tell me what to do. I'm yours. You're mine. You're my authority. I willingly put myself in your care. Now, when that happens, it will change three things about your life, your purpose, your pride, and your power. We'll go quickly through these. Verse 9. And he began to tell them this parable. Now, if you have your Bible in front of you or your phone, there's breaks between some of these. But in order for Jesus to communicate what he needed to communicate to these scribes and Pharisees, he said, I'm not going to tell you what authority I have. I'll tell you a parable, and that will help you understand. And here's a parable. A man planted a vineyard and let let it out to its tenants. He went to another country for a long while. When the time came... He sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him, sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully, sent him away empty-handed. And they sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? 
I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. In other words, perhaps they'll see that he's the authority. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let's kill him, so that the inheritance will be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And But look at this. Like you would agree with that, wouldn't you? When you say, yeah, of course, he's the owner. It's just a land lease. He, they killed his son. They killed all the other ones. That's not how they responded. Look at what they said. But they said, surely not. Or it could be translated, heaven forbid. And he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's so fascinating of a text. Pretty straightforward. This owner has a land lease. Basically, he's uh, renting it out to feudal farmers. He goes to collect. It's not their property. It's his property. It's his crops. It's his investment. And he uh, sends a servant. They beat him, send him away empty-handed. Send another one, they beat him, treat him shamefully, send him away empty-handed. Another one, they beat him, they wound him, maimed him, send him away empty-handed. I'll send my son. Let's kill him. If we can get rid of him, then we'll have it all. All of this will be ours. And actually, they knew, the Jewish people, the scribes and the Pharisees, knew what Jesus was doing. Don't have the time to go into it. But they would have known that the vineyard analogy, what's happening biblically here is that they're the tenants. That they're the ones, the scribes and the Pharisees that he's talking to, the chief priests, they're the ones that are kicking people out. And Jerusalem, there's a connection with the vineyard in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is ours. And if we could only get these Romans out of here, if we could only get these other people out of here, this is our property. And so they said, surely not. In other words, we haven't done anything that bad. Why would you overreact that much? And then he said, the builders have rejected this stone and it's become the cornerstone. Trying to help connect the dots with them. That he's the cornerstone, he's the rock of salvation, and they rejected him. Now, why? Why was Jesus rejected? Why, after all of this time, like Philip Brooks said, it was not suddenly and unannounced that Jesus came into the world. He was in the world that was prepared for him. The whole Old Testament is a story of special preparation. Only when it was ready, only in the fullness of time did Jesus come. They had been waiting and longing for a Messiah for years. How did they miss him? Why did they reject him? Well, they wanted a cornerstone that they could build around. See, they wanted a cornerstone that fit their structure. They wanted a king that was going to be an earthly king, that was going to run out the Romans, uh, that was going to bring them back to power, that was going to give them purpose again. And Jesus came and he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus came and he said, I'm going to forgive the prostitute and I'm going to heal the paralytic and I'm actually going to judge you for being hypocrites. And that didn't fit any of their structure. And so they rejected him. And if I could be honest, it's why a lot of us reject him. He just doesn't fit our structure for what we're trying to accomplish in our lives. We would much rather have a capstone that we put on the top of our structures that we built than a cornerstone that we build the rest of our lives around.
well, how can we apply just this part of purpose? Here's how we can apply it. You're also in this story. And here's what I would say. Work the vineyard that you've been given to work. I didn't, I didn't make it through. I made it through the first service. Not at all. Uh, I, didn't, I made it through the second service a little bit. But on the back of the bulletin, when we sang all the saints, and we recognized all of those people that had already been with the Lord, and uh, I, I buried the vast majority of them, I think all but one. I couldn't make it through the first service when we sang that song. I saw the images and all the people started coming back to me. And I'll say this. Nobody wants to be a widow. That's the vineyard you're called to work until Jesus returns. Nobody wants to have cancer. That's the vineyard you're called to work. No, nobody wanted to get cut from the high school basketball team. That's the vineyard you have to work. And nobody wants to be in a lifeless or loveless marriage. That's your vineyard that you've got to cultivate. Uh, nobody wants to have that business deal go through. That's your, that's your vineyard and your purpose in life. And my purpose in life is to work the vineyard that God has given you to work until he comes back. And it might not be the one you want to work, but it's the one you work to say, here's the fruit of glorifying you. Look, when I was in Scotland two years ago, pre-COVID, in February 2020, I remember I was there for some lectures. We went to Moot Hill, and Moot Hill is where they crowned all the kings of Scotland, the coronation. And if you go to that field, there's a seven-foot rise, and then it makes about the size of a basketball court. So it's in the middle of the field, and then it goes up like a raised green. It kind of goes up seven feet, and it's for a basketball court size. And there's a coronation stone there. Why on earth did the you know, the trajectory, the topography raise up. Here's why. Because for centuries, whenever there was a Scottish king, a new Scottish king who was going to be coronated, farmers and people from around the countryside would load up their carts with dirt and they would go over to the coronation for weeks on end and they would meet with the king and they would pour out the dirt of their land. So over the course of several hundred years, it built up that high. They would pour out the dirt of their lands and they would stand on it and they would say, King, I pledge my allegiance to you. You're my authority. And I'm pledging my allegiance to you here and I'm pledging my allegiance to you on my own land. And when I get back home, I'll also be allegiant to you. And that's what we do. We don't just come to church and say, look, God, I'm yours. We go from this place and we say, I'm still yours. In my home, in my school, wherever I am, you are my God. And that's my purpose. Now, here's the second thing. There's pride. It deals with our pride. Look at verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So Jesus teases it out a little bit more. And basically says, for me to be the cornerstone, we're going to have to get rid of your pride. And here's how it happens. Fall on me. Let me break you to pieces. Let me say this. If you're um, not a believer, uh, Christianity is not about being perfect or having it together. You, you actually, in Christianity, and especially in this church, you have permission, not from me, but from Jesus himself to be broken and to be vulnerable and not have it all together. Because Christianity is not about looking pretty. It's about making Jesus the center of our lives. 
And that's the beautiful thing about Christ. He says, look, I'm going to have to break down your pride that you don't have it all. So fall on me and let me do it. Years ago, I was uh, renovating a bathroom in our house because we have three kids, as you know, and all three kids have used the same bathroom. All of them had to use the same bathroom, which is the way it should be. Uh, you know, you're all going to f- learn how to live together. But we had, it was just one room with one sink and then a um, toilet and a shower. And then we had a son. And we're like, okay, we're going to have to break this up a little bit. So we put a pocket wall in between the sink and in between the bathroom. And I did the whole thing, tiled it all, plumbed it all, did all the electric, moved everything around. We're almost done with the whole thing. I'm putting in the pocket wall. I'm so excited by it. Uh, I mean, it's just working perfectly. And I'm doing the trim work around it. And I do one of the nails. And then I tell I'm, I'm done. I haven't painted it yet, but I'm done. And I tell Elizabeth and the kids, hey, kids, come in here. Let me show you this pocket wall. And I take one finger, and I'm just going to flick the door and just have it run right across that rail. And I flick it, and it goes, hmm. Move it back. And what happened was this. The, literally, the last nail I put in the trim was a little too long, and it went through, and it pinged the rail inside the pocket door casing so that now that little wheel that's on the pocket door wouldn't go any further. So I started, I figured out what happened, like, within 10, 20 seconds, and I immediately started ripping stuff out. The trim, the drywall, I mean, all of it was going to have to come out. I was going to have to deconstruct it all. And the loser said, don't you want to take a break now? I'm like, no, no, I'm going to do it. It was like midnight again. And then at like one in the morning, I'm still in there with a crowbar and with a hammer and stuff's coming out. And I'm just so mad that I made that one mistake. And she showed back up at the door and she said, don't you want to take a break? And I had the hammer in my hand like this. And she just walked right away. Like didn't say another word to me. Like now is not the time to tell me to take a break. But that one little thing, that one little nail mark required me to deconstruct everything so that I could fix it. That one little sin, that one little gossip, your propensity to be overly frugal and not be generous, that one little lie that you told, that one little lust with each one, we have to be willing to let go of our pride and say, God, You've got to take me apart. I, why, why am I always prone to lie? Why am I always prone to gossip? Why don't I trust you? Why am I prayerless? God, deconstruct me. Take me apart. Rip me apart. I'm falling on you. I've never liked that phrase, even when I wasn't a Christian. I never liked the phrase, ask Jesus into your heart. Who do you think you are? I love the phrase, fall on him. Fall on the mercy of Christ and let him break you apart. Because if you don't, he'll pulverize you. Look at the text. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That word there for the Greek is actually better translated, in my opinion. It will pulverize him. And it is the harshness of Christ that will pulverize you or the kindness of Christ. See, somebody thinks they're too good. Well, when Jesus comes, if you read with fresh eyes what he does in the New Testament, he's always saying, you fools, you blind guides, 
you're going to make somebody twice the son of hell as you are. I mean, he's, there's some moments where he's very harsh. And for people who think they're too good that they'll need them, it's the harshness of Christ that will crush and pulverize you. But for others who think that Jesus is too kind, it's the kindness of Christ that will crush you. Like when he said about the sinful woman, her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. I'm going to crush your judgment that I can forgive and have mercy on who I want to have. forgive and have mercy. And then lastly and quickly, power. Look at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told a parable against them. Uh, can we just pause there and recognize they're pretty dense as a group of people. They finally perceived that he might be talking about them. They feared the people. So they watched him, they sent spies, pretend to be sincere, that they may catch him in something he said, and so deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. And they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, but show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what they said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. The last thing I want to talk about when you grant Jesus authority is it changes your power structure. Now, most of you wouldn't say that you're power hungry. If I say you love power, you would say, no, 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 I don't love power. But you love control, and control is a form of power. You love your kitchen to be a certain way. You love your car to be a certain way. You love Friday night to happen a certain way. You love your office to be a certain way. You love your weeks to go a certain way. That's all power. That's a lust for power. And here they try to catch them. They get these scribes, and gets these uh, spies, and they send them. And how do they try to catch them? We're going to try to catch Jesus by showing he has conflicted allegiances to power. And so, you know, we're going to ask him, you know, do we give to Caesar or not? Because if we can make him a pawn of Rome, then the Jews will kill him. If we can make a traitor to Rome, then the Romans will kill him. And Jesus said, no, 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 it's neither. I'm not going to play that game at all. Now, I just want to say one quick thing. Christians, since this time, have always had a difficulty understanding how to interact with the power with any nation or government. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He who surrenders himself without reservation to the temporal claims of a nation or a party or a class is rendering Caesar that which of all things most emphatically belonged to God, which is himself. Here's what I want to ask. I'm going to ask that Mitchell Road becomes a church where we can dialogue just starting with each other about the things of politics in a dignified, dialogical way. That we could be the ones of this entire country that would pattern civility, knowing that our allegiance is ultimately to Christ 
And at the same time, we're called to be good citizens of whatever country we're in, as long as those laws don't go against what Christ wants to do, which then we have a philosophy of civil disobedience, which we can talk about later. But I'm going to ask, because we have gone sideways on this as well. Matter of fact, I had one person tell me last election, and this is great, right before midterms. It's phenomenal for me to be able to bring up this point, because one person told me two years ago, if you voted for that, it was a Senate candidate, if you voted for that person, you can't be a Christian. As if your voting record is what gets you into heaven. Now, I think it was a misguided vote. I totally disagree with them voting for them, but it doesn't disqualify you from the kingdom of God. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I love this country. I think this country is the greatest country in the history of the world. And on November 21st and November 24th, I will root and I will sing, I believe that we will win louder than any of you as the U.S. plays Wales and England in the World Cup. But at the same time, no kingdom represents the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ is the kingdom of Christ. And we cannot begin to think that we could tell our persecuted brothers and sisters that we have this figured out or that we know exactly what's happening when they live in environments and cultures and nations that don't even give them any freedom and understand where the kingdom of God is. This is a huge dividing issue in our culture, and in our churches, and it's ripping Christianity absolutely apart. And we've got to be willing to talk to each other about it. Discuss it across generational lines and other lines, and then recognize that at the end of the day, what matters most is that we give to God the things that are God's, and we're his image. That little coin, everybody look for the coin. Oh, Caesar's inscription on it. But what's imprinted upon you is the imago dei, the image of God. And that's what made them, look at the very end, that's what made them marvel. It made them marvel to think God has claimed me. You know, that word, um, ekousia, which is a Greek word for authority, it means jurisdiction, it means power, it also means to claim. And when God says, I have authority, that means he claims you don't have time to go down this trail theologically, but you're not more morally neutral. All of us are claimed by Satan <laughs> unless you're claimed by Christ. It, it, you're not Switzerland. You're not neutral. Satan has claimed the dead. He's claimed everybody for himself until Jesus says, no, my blood lays claim on these and they are mine. And there's nothing you can do to get them out of my hands. And I will not lose one of them because my blood has claimed my right over these people to be their king and to be their God. And when that happens, we say, yes, Lord, and amen. So this table that we come to is basically, don't let this language trip you up, but this is our pledge of allegiance to the king. This is where we say, your body and your blood, that has laid claim to me, and God, you are my authority. And so I'm going to let you break me down, my pride, and I'm going to live with a purpose in this vineyard, and I'm going to trust that you have the power, the power of the cross to change me, not just the power of a nation, but the power of a cross. So friends, here's what I want you to do as we come to this table. It says in the Westminster Confession, what's the Lord's Supper? The answer, don't read it, I'll read it for you. 
The Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the New Testament wherein, by giving and receiving bread and wine according to the appointment of Christ, his death is showed forth, and they worthily communicate and feed upon his body and blood to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. And they have their union and communion with him confirmed. And they testify and they renew their thankfulness. What do you do here? You renew your thankfulness. Your engagement to God. God, how's it going with us? And then a mutual love and fellowship with each other as members of the same mystical body. You connect with believers, even those being persecuted around the world because Christ has laid claim on you. So this is not a table of repentance. It's a table of celebration. I want you to think about that. Renew your thankfulness, engagement with God, mutual esteem and love as we come to this table.